Um, Matthew chapter 16. Am I on? There we go. Matthew chapter 16, if you would locate that with me. One quick note. So I think I'm talking about the kinder church, and maybe Deanna has already told you this, or uh, maybe you've got a text, I'm not sure, but I think her plan, she kind of told me, and she didn't tell me how I needed to announce this, but as uh, soon as we're finished, something in her lesson. So these are the little ones, right, who are in the far on the left, far room on the left, but they're the walkers and really the most energetic group, probably. Um, when we finish, I think she may have them in the hall, and she may bring them in here to our baptistry just for a moment. Something in her lesson lends for that, and so if your child is in kinder church, you may be picking them up up here, and uh, she'll do that just for a moment after we dismiss here. So, all right, Matthew chapter 16, got your Bibles ready. Good to uh, have those of you, hopefully. I think we're up and, and operating online, and I pray that you have your Bible uh, how, whatever version you have there, whether paper or plastic, and uh, you've got your Bible open to Matthew 16. Uh, we'll be spending the majority of our time here. At the end, we'll go to one other passage, Lord willing, in Colossians. Um, but other than that, we should be right around here. Maybe a verse or two pulling in other parts out of Matthew. All right, here we go. You ready for a quick review? Not a long one this time because we are in a new chapter, kind of a break and a little bit of a transition, and so now we're going to shift our attention a little bit. So I don't have a map, but that's okay. We don't need one this week. We're just going to use our imaginary Sea of Galilee in our mind, and here's where we left off. If you would imagine, it's almost like a clock, okay? So last chapter finished with the Lord down between like three and six, right? So if you have a three, you got 12 is the north. So over here on the eastern side, you have three o'clock, six o'clock. Down in this region is the Decapolis, and that's where the Lord fed miraculously five or 4,000 males plus women and children. But as we left off last week's passage, I didn't make a big deal about it, but verse 39, the end of verse 15, chapter 15, they moved from down between somewhere between 3 and 6. They moved across the lake. Somewhere, the best estimate is around like 9 on the dial on the other side of the lake. So now they're back on the western side of the lake, back in Galilee. And in verse 5, what you're going to see, I'll go ahead and plant this thought in your mind. So we've gone from here. Chapter 16 begins over on this side. And then it's going to refer to going again to the other side. It's not going back over here. We know from Mark that they're going to go north, all right? And so they're going to kind of go up around 12 o'clock, and then pretty soon we're going to see the Lord heading up into Caesarea Philippi, back into Gentile region. So he was in Gentile region, comes down, back south near the Sea of Galilee, but on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, heals for three days. Gentiles has compassion on them, feeds them miraculously, heads back to the Jewish side where verses 1 through Four are going to take place, and then he's going to head back to the northern side before soon he's going to head back to a Gentile region. We've been alluding to how different things are getting ready to happen in the book of Matthew. So with that movement in mind, we're over here at the 9 o'clock section on the dial in verse 1. Here we go. Back in, in Jewish Galilee region. And the Pharisees, they've come up over and over and over. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. I think this is only the second time we've seen the word Sadducees, so we'll need to introduce them in a moment. So Jesus, they land back in Galilee on the shore, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, 
Literally, Mark says that they began to argue with him. The Pharisees and Sadducees. They came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So here they come. I don't know how large the delegation was. Pharisees and Sadducees. Really, you don't see them working together hardly ever except in these situations. They come up together and they ask. Really, they start arguing, requesting. We could say demanding that the Lord show them a sign from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven. He answered them, and this will sound familiar. Just reading the verses will cause some of you to think of a little rhyme that you've learned as a child. He answered them. Get the picture. Show us a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather. Now, why would they say it's going to be fair weather? Hey, good news, good weather's coming. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. It's the evening time, the sky is red. You guys have figured something out, it's going to be fair weather. And in the morning, here's what's implied. You say, that's my words, not in the text, but it's implied. In the morning, you say, quote, it will be stormy today. Why would they say that? For the sky is red and threatening. Oh, in the evening, different from the morning, apparently is this indication of how things are going to change. You can tell this by looking at the sky, so they think. But Jesus seems to allow some validation of that, not in every part of the world, but definitely there In Galilee, I've read over and over multiple times this week that this would not necessarily be true of Egypt. It appears to be true more times than not in South Carolina. But where they were, apparently this was pretty good meteorology, right? They figured some things out. Show us a sign. You want a sign? You know what you guys can do? You figured out you can go out and look at the indicators in the sky and you can interpret that. The middle of verse 3, back to our text. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You you want a sign? You can interpret the signs in the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. And so here's his answer to their request. An evil and adulterous generation, you guys, you Pharisees and Sadducees, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But here's his answer. But no. There's the answer. No. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Some of you may be thinking, I declare, I thought we've already studied this. It seems like the Lord's already given these exact words. If we were to go back to chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, he gave this Basically, this same verse, verse 4, back in chapter 12, 39 and 40, and elaborated on a little bit more. So he says, no, and he reiterates, I will give you one sign, that he reiterates the sign of Jonah. Watch the end of verse 4. So he left them. Show us a sign. You guys are really good at doing this, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. No, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'll tell you what, you will have the sign of Jonah. I'm reminding you again to watch for that. And then he left them and departed. And so now they're going from here. Now they're heading up this direction. Apparently this happens quickly, unexpectedly, not planned because, verse 5, we're going to keep going. We're now shifting the movement of the story. When the disciples, that's implying him and the disciples, they're with him in a boat. Mark tells us they got in a boat and they moved. 
When the disciples reach the other side, again, the north, about 12 o'clock on the dial, there's a dynamic in place because the text says they had forgotten to bring any bread. Mark says they had one loaf of bread on the boat. So putting the two passages together, I've concluded they had one loaf of bread. Somebody got hungry rowing and scarfed it down. Now they have nothing left by the time they reach the shore. Verse 5 again. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, now notice where his thoughts are. This is me, not in the text. This is me reading between the lines. In my mind, however long it took to travel those just few miles from, three, from, from 9 o'clock back to 12 o'clock, I'm picturing the Lord's not talking a lot. He's thinking about the encounter he just had. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Can I, again, add without damaging this is not scripture, but I'm going to add just kind of how I picture it in my mind. They're nearing the shore, maybe even getting ready to dock, perhaps getting off the shore. The Lord's kind of been silent, and he ends up saying, Fellas, yes, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Now, this is what's implied there. You don't see it easily in English. It's because we brought no bread. Interpretation. He knows we don't have any bread. He's fussing. He's scolding. We're in trouble because we didn't get the bread. We left so fast. I didn't have time. I thought you were going, no, I thought you were going, ah, we don't have any bread. Verse 8. Jesus, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? What he's saying is, I know you don't have bread. I know you forgot the bread. Why are you over there stressing about the fact that you have no bread? Verse 8 again. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not get, get it? Do you still not understand? Notice the next question in the text. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Here's literally how that comes across. Do you guys, have you already forgot how that we had five little loaves, five little Ziploc bags equivalent, and how I took that and fed 5,000 males, the equivalent of probably 20, 25,000 people? With the, and do you remember how many baskets full did you guys collect after that? Uh... 12. Who collected those up? We did. You collect. Do you not remember? We started with five little loaves. You collected 12 baskets after feeding 20, 25,000 people. Have you already forgot that? Verse 6, verse 10. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? Um, guys, this just happened just a couple of days ago. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Large baskets implied there. Hamper-sized baskets. Do you remember when I took the seven loaves and there were 4,000 males, probably 10, 15, 20,000 people there, and I fed them? How many baskets did you guys gather up? Seven large baskets. So I started with hardly anything, and you finished with more after feeding all of these thousands of people. So he finishes verse 11. Matthew's writing this. He was on the boat. He was at the shore when this was being spoken. So the Lord asked, how is it? That you fail to understand that I, that I did not speak about bread. 
So he repeats, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Finally, they put it together. Let's notice three things this morning. Would you notice number one, verses one through four? I'm going to call it a second demand for a sign. A second demand for a sign. Why? Because as I said a while ago, this is a repeat in a way of chapter 12, verses 36, 37, 38, somewhere around there. The early portion, uh, the middle portion of chapter 12. Now look at verse 1 because we need to touch on something quickly. Notice the text says, and the Pharisees, very familiar with them. Let's just get this in our mind, right? These are the ultra-conservative. These are the people who are more conservative than any of us here this morning. I mean, they're devout. I don't mean inwardly devout, but I mean externally. They're extremely devout about their belief. They mean business about their religion. But then we have a second group, only the second time mentioned in the text. The previous time was, I think, back in chapter 3 that just told us the Sadducees came to the baptism of Jesus. They were there when John was baptizing along with the Pharisees. But now here they come with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Who are the Sadducees? I want you to think right quick. What do you know about the Sadducees? How are they different from Pharisees? What's in your mind? Some of you are thinking, oh, I know that they're this and this and this. And some of you are like, I have no idea. So for that reason, let's just recap quickly. If the Pharisees are the conservatives, then it's very safe to say the Sadducees were the absolute liberals of the day. Now to differentiate, I'm not going to say the Pharisees were politicians, but the Sadducees were very much political. They were all about politics. They were the liberals of the day. Watch. Let's put a few things out. You'll take a note on it in a moment. Number one, how were they different? The Sadducees did not accept the, the oral law. Remember the oral law. So we talked about how we had the word of God, this foundation. And then the Jews, their rabbis, started making interpretations based on the revelations. But then they started not just being content with the interpretations. You have to do that. That's normal. But then they started making these rules and regulations and traditions based on the interpretations, which were based on the Word of God. And the further they go away from that, they're getting further away from God's Word. The Pharisees were all about the oral laws and rules and traditions. The Sadducees are like, we don't accept those. They're more liberal. We don't have to live by those. But it gets more different than that because, hey, I'm kind of with them on that. I'm with the Pharisees on that whole oral Pharisees, you got to keep all the oral laws. Sadducees are like, no, we don't think they apply. We don't have to do them. But here's the problem where we break with the Sadducees. The Sadducees not only did not adhere to the oral law, they did not adhere, adhere to the laws of God. They did not believe in the, what we call the Old Testament books, with the exception of the first five. So they accept Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but all the rest of your Old Testament, they don't buy into it. It's not binding. Let me throw this in. This is not in your text, but I, I, because this always blows my mind. When you read the text, the, the New Testament talks about the chief priests and the office of the high priest. Those were dominated by Sadducees. Keep that in mind, who were rulers and the leading elders, national elders of God's people. And yet, here's the last thing I'll give and you'll see it on the screen. Watch. They don't accept the oral law. They only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. But they don't believe in miracles. 
Don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels, demons. Just not buying it. Don't believe they exist. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in anybody's resurrection. Why? They don't believe in the afterlife. That's in your note. Now think about that even as you're writing. These are the people who are the leaders of the people of God, and they don't even believe in the afterlife. They just don't go along with that. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? What degradation has taken place in the land of Israel to get to this point where their leaders no longer even believe in the afterlife? It's like, do you even believe in God? And ultimately, they barely believed in God. So verse number one, we have this very unusual unification. Pharisees and Sadducees were opponents And yet here they decide to come together as a delegation to present themselves to the Lord to tempt him and test him and argue with him and to request that he owes them a sign. Usual enemies uniting to attack Christ. This has happened through the history of the world. I'll go ahead and tell you this will happen again. It's going to happen more and more in the United States. It's coming. There are people who are on this side and on this side, but in the days ahead, they will unite. It's like, we don't agree on that or that, but we both agree on this. Those people need to be opposed, and they're going to be talking about Christians. This is not going to be new when it happens. They did it to their Lord. To our Lord, they'll do it to us. Notice verse number one. Show us a sign. What they're asking here is, literally, we want you to do something special for us. I'm going to say this multiple times. I want you to get how arrogant this is. We're here to evaluate you. You need to perform and do this for us. And so they put Christ to a test. I thought about this, and I wonder. The text does not say other than to say that they ask him to show them, show them a sign from heaven. What are they looking for? I thought about it. Are they looking? I mean, what do they want Jesus to do? Do they want him to rewind time and be born of a woman who's never had sexual relations with a man? Do they want him to rewind time and be born of a virgin so as to fulfill a prophecy by Isaiah? Is that what they're after? Maybe they want him to prove through the paperwork and all the genealogies, that his lineage is traceable back to David, just as the Davidic covenant demands that the Messiah, the Christ, should be able to do. Is that what their demand is? Show us a sign. Is their demand that maybe you would feed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people miraculously like God did back in the time of Moses? Is their demand that Christ would give sight to blind people and hearing to deaf people, the ability to walk to cripple people, again, like Isaiah predicted? Is their request, we need you to, like, confirmed, raise from the dead people who have already passed this life into the next life like God did back in the time of Elijah and Elisha? Or are they really, because the text says, show us a sign from heaven. Are they, maybe they're looking for something like this. They want him to pull this off. To have God himself audibly 
audibly speak from heaven down to the earth and say that that person right there, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, is my son. He pleases me, and you need to listen. to. Is that the kinds of things that they're looking for? Now, all of you realize what I've just done, because if that's the signs they're looking for, check, 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 done it all. What are you missing? Look at verse 2. Show us a sign. Verse number 2. Once again, y'all are hearing this version that I heard from my dad before I knew that it was in the Bible. He answered them, when in his evening you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Help me out. Red skies at night, shepherds delight. Red skies in the morning, shepherds take warning. Shepherds warning. So what is the Lord's point here? Here's what he's saying. If you want to write this down. The Lord is saying that his enemies have paid really close attention. They've gathered some things. And they've been able to decipher and notice patterns in weather. You've noticed patterns in weather. That's great. But somehow you have failed to notice that Jesus' life fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. How is that possible? Guys, I've thought about this over and over, and I realize I have a huge advantage. I've read this text 25 or 30 times this week. This irritates me. This irritates me. You guys so arrogantly come up and make these demands that Jesus performs some sign just for you. No purpose to the sign. Just do something to wow us, and then we will evaluate you because it's our position to be up here in the stands. You're down in the arena, and we're going to decide, are you the Christ and the Messiah? We'll let you know. Do something big. How arrogant on their part. Again, pay attention to this note. They've studied the Bible. They have the Old Testament prophet. They've studied that surfacely, but they, they, they know the facts. And they've nitpicked and studied his life, but somehow they've not put the two and two together that his life fulfills the Old Testament. The Jews have been waiting and waiting for the Messiah, the Christ to come. He's literally standing right in front of him, and they're saying, show us a sign that you are the... They're talking to God, and they want a sign. Blows my mind. Can I take just a moment to apply this to us? You see the end of verse 3? Look at the end of verse 3. You know how to interpret. He's giving them some credit. This is not a bad thing, by the way. He's basically saying there's something to it. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. We hear that phrase in modern, conservative, Bible-believing teaching and preaching, and here's what our mind does. We think signs of the times equals predicting future events. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you guys should be able to predict the future. That's not his problem. He's not fussing at them for that. He's saying you can't even tell the signs that are abundant all around you. You can't see what's happening right now in the land. Again, you've studied the Bible. You've heard what's happening. Many of you have seen what I have done, and you're asking me for a sign. I thought of it this way. They had real insight into things that do not matter the most. Two times today in my message, somebody may misread what I'm saying and thinking I'm attacking these things. I am not attacking these things. What I'm saying is they have great knowledge in things that 
are fine. They're fine of themselves, but they don't matter the most. How many of us would be described that exact same way? How many of you, and you just evaluate yourself, is this any of us? How many of us is this that that describes us? Here we go. Are you well-versed in fine things? I want to emphasize that these are fine things. But they're just not crucial. And I'm telling you, the moment you leave this world, I mean, the moment you die, you will realize those things that you were well-versed in no longer serve you. But the bigger problem is you're well-versed, talented, gifted, understanding in these things, but, and I don't mean that I'm using this word properly as it's really meant, not as an insult, but we're ignorant on the things that do matter the most. That the moment you die and enter the next life, I mean, within a second, you'll realize those things no longer help me. Why was I so ignorant on the things that mattered? Fine things I'm about to describe. How many listening now have really learned your way around a computer? I mean, you know the inner workings, the circuit board. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you know a brand. I mean, you know all the keys and all the things and all the functions and what this software will do. And you can really talk someone through that. That's a useful thing in this life. You're really well versed at it. How many are really good at operating and navigating the internet? I mean, you're a master at it. You know what's going on the internet. Get with me. I'll show you how to find it. I'll show you how to do this. You are really, really good at navigating the internet. Mike mentioned this and even commented that there's some good. I'm going to mention it a few times today. How many listening now are very well versed in social media? I'm not preaching against social media. Please understand that. But I mean, like, this is just the honest truth of your life. I mean, you're kind of an expert at social media. You know what's going on. You know what's trending. You know what's hot. You know the hot takes. And just not to be too proud, just modestly telling the facts, you give a pretty good hot take every now and then. And you've got a number of followers that really care about your ideas because you're pretty good on social media. How many people, this describes you, you're very well versed at political discussions. I mean, when politics comes up, you know what this side believes. You know what this side believes. You know the senators on this side. You can name, name a state and you can tell them that one, that one, and that one. And name them on this side. You can name the senator of that state. And over here, you know the congressman. You know executive orders that have been passed. You know bills that have been presented and shot down. You know the laws that have been enacted last year, this year. I mean, you just talk about it. You already have a pretty good idea of who's going to be running three and a half years from now for the next election. The, big, the next big election. You are so up on that. You're just like a wealth of knowledge. Maybe you really know how to navigate your way around a golf course or a fashion store or a boardroom. In a boardroom, you're ultra comfortable. You know how to do it and get done what you need done. Or drop you in a sports conversation and you can name player after player and stat after stat. And I mean, you'll just wow everybody with all that you know. You say, Jeff, are you preaching against those? No, no, no. Those are fine things. 
But here's the big question. Do you know how to navigate your way around this book? Are you well versed in this book or is this the truth? I spent so much time on these other things. I have to rely on someone else to tell me what the Bible says. Are you well versed? Do you know how to navigate to the throne of God to like literally get in the throne of God in the presence of the Lord to receive his mercy and ask for grace? Or are you one of these people that when an emergency hits, you need to call somebody and hurry, they need to pray for me. Do you know how, are you well versed in the ability to take the word of God and show someone else from the Bible how they can have a relationship with God and have eternal life? Can you do that? Or are you one of these that like, hey, I need to call the experts. I've got somebody over here I think needs to get saved. Can you come tell them how to be saved? I've only been a Christian for nine years. I, don't, I know I'm sarcastic there, and I'm, you're not supposed to be sarcastic. It bites. It's not effective, and I just did it. I have not yet unlearned that technique, so you'll have to forgive me. Well, that's these guys. What the Lord is in essence saying, there's an abundance of signs all around you, and you guys are asking for more signs because you're blind to the existing signs. Now hear this. Why are they blind? It's a heart issue. They're blind to what others are seeing because their hard heart keeps them from receiving the signs. And so the Lord's answer to their question, as I pointed out a while ago, is, you want a sign? No, you're not going to get one. You will not get another sign. The only sign you'll get is the one that I mentioned to some of your cohorts, and I say, oh, you returned this time, and you're back this time, and the others of you are new. You two will remember. I'm reading between the lines. I told you last time to look for the sign of the prophet Jonah, and you're not going to get what you're asking for. You're going to get what everyone else receives. So the answer to your request is no. Write this note down. With all that he had done, their request is extremely arrogant. And I mean extremely. They want their own personal, private, sideshow of signs. They want their own private, we could say, sign show. Their smug attitude is basically this. Jesus... Those signs that Bartlett mentioned a while ago, virgin birth and genealogies and healing blindness and deafness and lameness and raising the dead and God's voice out of heaven. Listen, those are fine for the average people, but we're not average people. We're here to make a call on your life. We need something fresh and big. In other words, you want a purposeless sign just to convince you of my credentials. Yeah, pretty much that's what we want. Very arrogant. And the Lord says, no, I will not perform specially for you. Let me quickly apply that. Because they're not alone. These people are not alone. They did that in their day. And today, what I'm about to describe is a growing number of people in the United States. I remember when you'd be hard-pressed to know anyone. We would preach on this in churches, and people would be like, yeah, that sounds in theory. I'm sure they're out there. I don't know anyone. But as I say this, some of you will be like, oh, I know someone who that fits. There's a growing number of people in our country. They're in South Carolina. They're in the city of Anderson. You may know some of them who have come to this conclusion. I see no signs there is a God. I see no signs. I've looked and looked. I've come to a conclusion. There's no evidence there is a God. 
Now, I know the Bible says there's a God, but I see no evidence that there is a God. Y'all help me out. What does the book of Romans chapter number 1 says clearly, and Psalm 19, clearly speaks that there is a God? What is it? Creation. Nature. Uh, We don't see any signs that there's a God. And yet, the Bible teaches that creation, if we, I, I thought about this later and I didn't do it. It would take a lot of work and my inability. I wish right now we'd just hit a button and you would just see on the screen waterfalls and nature scenes and galaxy scenes and universe scenes and, and all the acids around various parts of space and a little bit of babies and little newborn animals and plants and trees and, again, waves and waterfalls, the whole deal. I just wish that was playing, and then I stand up here and say, I see no evidence that there is a God. But the Bible says that nature says that it speaks of his existence, his power, and of his wisdom. Nature says there is a God. He exists. He's extremely powerful. We don't know how powerful, but he's very powerful. He's huge, and he's very, very wise. And yet some people say, I see no signs that there's a God. I'll not have you turn there. If you want to write out to the side, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 tells us how they get there. How do these people arrive at these conclusions? The King James says that of these people, they are willingly ignorant. Let this sink in. You say, well, I know someone who says they don't think there's a God. They see no indication, no sign, no evidence there's a God. I know someone like that. Let me tell you what the Bible says about them. They are willingly ignorant. The ESV words it this way. Watch. They deliberately overlook the facts. Why? Because they are scoffers. In the verses leading up to 2 Peter 3, 5, the Bible says they are scoffers who follow their sinful desires. So if you're taking notes, write this down. It's not that they lack evidence. There is no lack of evidence that there's a God. They lack submission. They don't lack evidence. They lack submission. And so you say, well, what will the Lord do for those people who say they don't see enough signs? What will he do? They will not be given more revelation than what all of us have, which is our own conscience. You're born believing. You're wired to believe that there's a God. They have nature creation, and they have the scriptures. So those are the three big things. You're born believing there's a God. You have to convince yourself or someone else convinces you because you willingly want to overlook the facts. In fact, Second Peter says it even attaches it to the flood. It's as though back in the first century, the Holy Spirit knew to have Peter write that the thing they would particularly overlook is the flood because the flood answers many of the people's questions who try to say there is no evidence of God. The flood causes a lot of the things that the supposed experts and smartest people in the world causes them to be thrown. No, you willingly overlook exactly the very thing the Bible says. Look it up in your own time, 2 Peter 3, 5. So they'll not be given more of a revelation. Again, show us a sign, especially for us. I want to finish this section by noticing verse 4, and I'm going to repeat some things I said back in chapter 12, and I'll do it quickly. You ready? Look at verse 4. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Back in chapter 12, Jesus goes further. He says, For just as Jonah, literally, he's talking about a literal event, 
Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man. Here's his prediction. Here's your sign. So shall the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. He's predicting his resurrection. We're going to be celebrating this in three weeks from this moment. So what's Christ saying? I want a sign. We sometimes think, boy, this person's trusting God or asking God for a miracle. They must have great faith. No, no, listen. Desiring and demanding a sign is an indication that a person has unbelief. It's not a sign of faith. It's a sign of unbelief. I'll give you examples. I shared these months, a couple months ago. Here's one. They're in a mess. Life's all messed up. And they have that, this theoretical conversation. I don't even know that you exist. But if you do, and you'll get me out of trouble, if you'll get me out of this mess, if you'll save my marriage, if you'll get that for me, or if you'll save my dying loved one, then I will believe in you. Here's the attitude. As if they're doing God this big favor. I'll believe in you if you'll do this thing that I'm demanding. If you'll come through and do this miracle. Because I'm not really sure that you exist. But if you do, prove yourself to me. How does God treat that? Write this down. It is good to ask God to display his power in a prayer request. I'm gonna, I think last time I used the word, that's fine to do that. I'm going to go stronger. It is good. Christians, we should be asking God, display your power. We ask him that in prayer request. That's a good thing. Here's the wrong thing. It is wrong to request God's power be displayed as if our faith in him depends on his answer to that request. Pray big. We should be praying bigger than we are. I've come to that conclusion. I need to pray bigger than I do. Jesus is saying, hey, ask, seek, knock. The Heavenly Father wants to do these things. But he wants you to ask and seek and knock. Pray big. Pray for God to show his power. But don't ever pray in such a way as if God's response to your prayer will determine whether I continue to believe in you or not. So here's the truth. God wants to, us to have faith in his word, in his promises, not always holding out for miracles and signs and special things done in our life. Like, God, if you'll prove yourself to me, then I'll believe in you. That's not what God wants. He wants us to pray big because we believe in him. And yet we surrender when he doesn't give us our request. But it's not going to affect our faith. We just take it as his will that he did not grant our request. He wants faith in his written word, his spoken word, in his promises. Not demanding and expecting miracles. Notice one last thing on verse 4. And we're going to go to our second point. And the second point is much more brief than that one. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Again, you say, what's the sign of Jonah? We need to be reminded. Here it is. Jesus saying that Jonah's literal being swallowed. There's a storm. He, he, he's thrown into the sea. This fish swallows him. That's a picture of Jesus' dying this great fish takes him down into the depths of the sea. That's a picture of Jesus being buried. He's there for three days. That's a picture and a type of Jesus being buried for three days. But then the great fish brings him back to the surface and vomits him, in essence, on the dry land. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. So catch this. You say, well, then, is that even a new sign? So I'm going to repeat what I said last time. 
The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah, the Christ, would raise from the dead. What is new about what Christ gives here is the Old Testament never specified three days. That's the new thing. And so the Lord is literally saying, here's your ultimate sign that I am who I say I am. Three days. Look for that. I will die, and when, I am, when I'm resurrected, I'm going to tell you when I will be resurrected. I'll be resurrected on the third day. And as most of you know, the disciples forgot all about that prediction. They were downcast and in gloom. But there was a couple of groups of people who remembered Jesus' prediction. Pharisees and Sadducees. They had their way. They have Jesus put to death in crucifixion. Jesus is buried in a tomb. The, the stone is in place. They remember what he says. They go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, Hey, we remember what this heretic said, and he's supposedly going to do this, and so we want to make sure there's no trickery. Would you send a Roman guard, soldiers, to guard the tomb? Pilate grants them. They go guard the tomb, and you guys know that three days later, on Sunday morning, early in the morning, Jesus resurrects. There's this earthquake. The stone is rolled away. The soldiers, if you'll read Matthew chapter 27, 62 to 66, and then chapter 28, 11 to 15, the soldiers end up coming to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes and tell them, hey, there's this earthquake, and the stone's rolled away, and we realize we're guarding nothing. There is no body in there. You would think at that moment, these people who asked for this big sign and were told the sign of the prophet Jonah be looking for that would go, you're kidding. He really did it. He called it. I believe now. Oh, no. Y'all remember what their solution was. Here, guys, come in. Here's some money. Tell everybody that you all fell asleep. And while you fell asleep, his disciples came and stole the body right over there. While you fell asleep, and you're such good sleepers. And they stole the body while you were asleep. Here's some money. You know what that tells me? No matter what Jesus did, they were never going to believe. People today, God, show me this special sign. No, you're not going to believe. You'll get what everyone else gets. Number two, there's confusion among Jesus' disciples. Confusion among Jesus' disciples. I want you to really be involved. Don't just listen at this point. I'll not have you answer out loud. But would you just look at verse 6? So verse 5, they reach the other side. They're in the boat, according to Mark. We know they forgot bread. Jesus is still thinking about the encounter with the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're thinking about they forgot bread. Oh, no, we don't have your bread. What are we going to eat? I bet we're going to get fussed at. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Now, keep looking at the text, because here's my question. What in verse 6 made them conclude verse 7? You see it? What exactly in verse 6, when Jesus, who's God, speaks, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, What in verse 6 leads them to conclude verse 7? I'm going to offer what I think is the answer. You say, what do you think the answer is? Nothing. There's nothing in verse 6 that should have made them conclude verse 7. Hey, fellas. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's because we have no bread. We're in trouble. I thought you know. Ah, what are we going to? 
Do you see it? Watch. This is important. I'm going to make a point, and I'm gonna, we're going to interpret it in a moment. I'm doing a reverse order. In fact, I'm kind of almost, but not, almost doing what I'm about to say not to do. Watch. They hear leaven, and their brain supplies what word? Bread. Did you catch that? Fellas, beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because we have no bread. We don't have any bread. And then Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves? What, what are y'all doing? We're talking about how we have no bread. Why did you just do that? He says, leaven, you hear bread. I want to make a point. This is important. You say, Jeff, it's subtle. It's kind of to a different crowd. We don't need this. Just give us kind of the main things this morning. Well, this is the main thing in this section. You know what they remind me of? They remind me of a lot of us, I'm including me, Christians who sometimes hear things God never said. We do that. We hear things God never said. Here's how it happened. They have on their brain how they forgot bread. So when Jesus says, beware, watch and beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're thinking about how they forgot bread. So when they hear God speak, they immediately apply. Here's how it happens. They apply his words, or shall we say, misapply his words to their immediate situation. Hang with me. Their minds over here on bread, Jesus, who's God, says this. They take his words and immediately apply to where their mind is. And they end up on a total wrong track. Write this thought down. Even if you're not taking notes on everything else, I want you to write this thought down and go home and think about it. We must not, we Christians must not hold Scripture captive to what is on our mind. We must not. Here's a good principle for us. We must not hold Scripture captive to what's on our mind. But rather, we must hold our mind captive to what is in Scripture. So you, want, you need to come and think about that. Don't get in a habit of holding the Scriptures captive to what you're thinking about. Instead, learn to hold your mind captive by and captive to what is in the scriptures? You say, Jeff, explain it a little further. Watch. Those of you who actually read the Bible know what I'm about to say. It is so uncanny. It's like supernatural sometimes. So often, the Bible is not just timely. It is very timely. You're reading privately. Some things are going on in your life. And you're reading the Bible. And lo and behold... It just, it is exactly what you needed from the Word of God that day. And some of you are like, yes, I love those days. But let's be honest, there are other days that doesn't happen. That happens often. But here's my point. Don't force it. Don't force that. It is okay to read the Bible for its own sake without forcing misapplications of things that God's not necessarily saying. They're thinking about food they hear leaven, and off they immediately start applying the words of God the wrong way. You say, Jeff, is this even really that important? Yes, it is important. You say, why? Here's how it happens, and I'll show you where it leads to. Here's how it happens. Okay? 
A lot of Christians, here's how they read their Bible, figuratively. They're getting ready to read their Bible, whether it be a verse of the day or a paragraph of the day or a chapter of the day or three. Here, ready? Here's how it goes. Subconsciously, they put on their glasses of application. I've got, what is the Bible going to tell me today that's going to fit my life? What is my thought for today? And they go and they put on their application glasses and they're looking for the thing that's going to jump off the page and be just what they need today. You say, well, what's wrong with that, Jeff? We're reading our Bible. That's good. Yes. We're respectful of the Bible because we're looking to it for answers. That's good. Yes. But here's the problem. Many Christians, and perhaps some listening right now, read a passage of Scripture and then immediately start applying it to their life in 2021 without first putting it in its proper, and can I say, original context. Those of you that have been doing various things that Deanna's been doing and teaching, you're right now saying, you sound like Deanna. Okay, yeah. Many people have been trying to tell us this for years. I think we're going to talk about this much further on Wednesday night, even revisiting some things that we talked before because we need to... You say, Jeff, there's a lot more exciting things to talk about. This is necessary for us. We need to learn to do the proper thing. Don't just automatically start looking through your application glasses. You say, then what should we do? When you approach the Scripture, number one... Who's talking? You say, well, God wrote the Bible. Right, but you need to. You say, I don't like doing that. That's all that extra stuff. It takes a bunch of work. Find out on the human level who wrote this. Who are they writing to? When was this written? What were the conditions that were going on? You say, well, I don't know all those answers. That's why you need to use some good helps to help you get these answers. Here's another one. What is the grammar of the text really saying? What does those two or three words that we're not really sure what they mean? We need to look those things up. Don't just start launching into application. Find out the original context. Who wrote this? Who were they writing to? What were the conditions? What were the cultures? What was the setting? Again, what is the grammar? What do these words mean? Ultimately, we're asking this. What does this text say? Then what does this text mean? And after I've done that, now how does this text apply to my life? You say, Jeff, that sounds like a lot of work. Does it really matter? Write this down. That's a sure recipe to reach wrong conclusions when you do it the wrong way. And it actually leads to some people thinking God has lied. They just read a text. Start making application to their life in 2021. What's on their mind right now? Yes, this is it. That's the verse right there. And they can lead them to think God has lied. Why? Because Christians sometimes are going around claiming promises God never made. Never made that promise. God didn't come through. I read this morning, and I just knew that was going to happen by the end of the day. And here it is midnight, and it didn't happen. God, you're a liar, and you get all cast down and you're ready to quit on God and if enough of those things happen you just get disgruntled or disillusioned and you start falling by the wayside because God's a liar and the Bible's just not true no you misinterpreted the Bible now let's notice what verse 8 through 11 is really about look at it so they just take off on this total misapplication Verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus rebukes his disciples for being slow to trust. 
Slow to trust what? Slow to trust his care for them. Slow to trust his power to provide for their needs. They're over there stressing out that they forgot bread as though they're not going to have anything to eat on this new venture to the other side of the lake. And now they find themselves in Bethsaida, which is on the Gentile side of the top of Galilee. And they're getting ready to go into another Gentile region. And so we're not going to have any bread. We're going to have to buy bread in Gentile lands. That's probably a bad thing. Some have surmised that that's what Jesus is scolding them for. Like, uh uh-oh, we forgot bread, and we we have to eat bread that's prepared by Jews. No, I'm pretty sure we just recently found out where Jesus said all foods are now clean. There are no foods that are ceremonially unclean. So whether prepared by Jews or Gentiles, that's not the fact. What the Lord is ultimately saying is, guys, why are you stressing about food? I'm not talking about food. You took off on food. Let me say this, and I'll be done. We're going to go quickly to the third point. Watch. They forgot two things. They totally forgot two things. Oh, you have little faith. Number one, they forgot what Jesus had said back in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to flip back there. You'll not see it on the screen. Just happen to go right to it. Remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. <clears throat> do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? They've totally forgot that God feeds the birds, all billions and billions and billions of them, every day, and he has his own children. Do you not remember that God knows what you need? Have you forgotten that? Yep, they've forgotten that. They're all stressed. And the biggest, more pertinent thing to this particular text is they've totally forgot what Jesus can do. Again, reading between the lines, it's like the Lord is saying, Fellas, do you seriously think I'm stressed that y'all forgot? Do you think I'm reliant upon you guys remembering our food? Did you seriously forget what I'm able to do? Do you not yet know that I can repeat those two miracles that I did with those five little loaves and those seven little loaves and those probably 40,000 people told... Do you understand? I can do that again at any moment. Now, Grace, if you listen to me, here's what he's basically saying. In all that I've done, have you somehow missed the revelation of my love for you and my provision for you and my protection of you? Your main thing is to answer this question. Am I in the middle of the will of the will of God? If I am, then it's up to him to meet my needs. And he will as long as he has a desire and a will for me to accomplish on this earth. I'm his business. It's not up to me to always be stressing. Stop stressing. Why are you thinking about food? I'm not talking about food. And then they finally realize, oh, well, you're talking about leaven. not talking about leaven of bread. Oh, you're talking about leaven of teaching. Yes. Point number three. Write this down. Jesus warns about false teaching. Verses 6, verse 11. Verse 12. Look again at verse 6. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was said to them, whether in a boat, leaving the boat, at the dock, on the land. This is on his mind, having had this encounter. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hey, watch for it. Beware of it. Well, then we need, now understanding what he's talking about, we need to understand as we study what this means, 
We here in 2021 need to apply that and, and realize what's going on in our day that is the equivalent of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, if you're taking notes, write this. Why is Jesus mentioning leaven? What's, if he's not talking about bread, what's he talking about? Do you guys remember chapter 13 where we're going through the parables? You guys remember that? You remember the point of the parable of the leaven? It was just like a verse or two. When Jesus is talking about leaven, he's bringing that in. He's mentioning leaven's ability, its character to influence. It's this idea. Just a little leaven has tremendous ongoing influence. The teaching, the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, just a little of the poison of their teaching can do great damage. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus mentions leaven because of its nature to quietly permeate dough. So much so until it permeates the entire dough, takes over the whole lump. And ultimately, the leaven changes the character of the lump. And more times than not, chapter 13 of Matthew is an exception. More times than not, leaven being used in the Bible is a symbol of evil and wickedness and its influence. It just takes a little and it corrupts and it contaminates and it works its way out and it changes the character. A little evil in a person changes their character. A little wickedness in a group of people like Graceview will change the character and, and our nature. Remember how it was? You can have a seven-gallon lump of dough that is unleavened. You take an eraser-sized piece of leavened dough, put it in there, surround it back, give it a little time, and that leaven will work its way through the entire enormous lump of dough and it will cause it to swell up and rise and what the Lord is saying is that's what's happening with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees and you need to be watching and you need to beware of this and this is where if we had time and we were in a Bible college we'd pause and we'd take a couple of weeks and go into systematic theology and the proper doctrines and these are the wrong doctrines and watch out for these these are the bad ones and these are all the good ones but we don't have time to do that so let's do this What is the leaven of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees? You have, I think, five bullet points on your handout. I didn't have room for a sixth one. I'll say it verbally. What is the leaven? Since we don't have time to pause and just do a deep dive into good doctrine, good theology, and thereby teaching against wrong theology, can we look at the scribes and Pharisees and let's get some just broad categories and descriptions of them and say, you know what? Those kind of never change. And the leaven of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees keeps pouring down through the ages, though its name and its version may change. These types of things continue to come up. So let me offer six, five on your handout. You ready? So what is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? It has several forms. Number one, here's the broadest. This is both of them, Pharisees and Sadducees. Here it is. Refusal to accept Jesus as Lord. There's a refusal. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a refusal to accept Jesus as Lord. Can I just make a blanket statement? Any such religion that refuses to accept that Jesus the Christ of Nazareth in the New Testament is the Lord, you need to reject that religion. 
You just need to reject that religion. It's not true. I know that as I say that, some may be thinking of an exception. But Jeff, what about Judaism? Judaism, I mean, we have our Old Testament from them. Isn't that a great religion? No, it is not. We are not, we're, we are not of the religion of Judaism. Why? They reject Jesus is the Messiah. And so you may learn some things from them, but you don't need to just adopt everything that they say. If that's your mentality, you need to cut that off. That is leaven. That is, that is wickedness. That's a resistance against the Lord. The day is coming when those Jews who are on the, on the earth will finally look on him whom they've pierced and they will believe. But to this day, Judaism rejects our Lord. That's a false religion. Many more like it. I know that Islam says, oh, we believe that Jesus was one of the prophets, but they do not make him Lord. We reject Islam. It is, it's wrong. It's false teaching. Write this down. Secondly, the next three or four, especially the next four, pertain primarily to the Pharisees. Let's touch them quickly. We've hit them recently. It's the leaven of the Pharisees that has teaching of man-made lists of religious rules. Watch out for religions that teach these man-made lists of religious rules. Not to be found in the Bible. Again, we can all have our own personal standards that do not have to be spelled out in Scripture. But we can't go teach as mandatory rules and regulations. I will finish my message in just a few moments with a suggestion on my part. It's not a rule and regulation, and you don't need to adhere to it. I'm going to make a suggestion, though. Number three, the leaven of the Pharisees of their teaching... The corruption, the pervasive corruption of their teaching contained this. Watch out for this. An emphasis on externals at the neglect and to the neglect of the internals. Watch out for that. An emphasis on externals. Again, that ties back to all these rules and regulations which are usually external oriented. Neglecting. Pharisees had the externals down pat, but their inside was like a tomb full of dead men's bones. Death and corruption was in the internal parts of their religion. Number four, watch out for religions that promote this. Arrogant judgment of others along with arrogant reliance upon their own good works. That's what the Pharisees were about. Arrogant judgment of others. This is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let me insert this one. The next one is not on your handout. So just listen to it. Eventually, Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 23. And the Lord, our Lord, is going to flat out blister the Pharisees. And Matthew 23. Let me just flip over there. You got your Bibles open. Flip over 23. Look at 23. Look at verse 3. Just look at. Here's another one of the 11. You got to watch for this. Chapter 23, back up to verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds, to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, a lot of what they're saying is true. But notice what it says. Do and observe what they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Watch out for religion that is content to know the Bible, to know truth, but not obey the truth. That's not a good religion. Well, as long as I know the Bible, as long as we come to Grace View and we do good Bible studies and we get all this knowledge, we can then go out and live totally opposite to what we learn. And we're really good. There's this great relationship with the Lord. Absolutely not. That's leaven. They're hypocrites. 
And then the last one really has to do with the Sadducees. The leaven of the Sadducees is like a totally different category. They promoted a willingness to sacrifice the eternal. For the, watch this. This is in our land today. This, is pre- this one is more prevalent today than all that we just said about the Pharisees. This is the religion of our day. A willingness to sacrifice the eternal for the sake of earthly wealth. They were wealthy. Earthly comfort. Earthly pleasure. That seems to be the predominant humanistic, materialistic, self-loving idolatry and, and religion in the United States today. So did you catch it? Here's two things. The Pharisees are these ultra-conservative legalists trying to earn their way to heaven. The Sadducees are these liberal people who don't even really fake it at religion because they're all bought into enjoying and indulging themselves in having their best life right now. They're all invested in the earthly life, totally neglecting the next life. They don't even believe in the next life. He said, Jeff, do we really need to watch this? Oh, absolutely. Here's why. Can we just all be honest? Did you catch the difference? Pharisees earning these externals, checklist theology. That appeals to us. That is appealing. That's doable. I can measure my religion by my externals. If I do this and do this and wear that and don't wear that and don't do those things, eat these things and don't eat those things and drink these things and don't drink those things, say these words and don't say those words, go these places and avoid these, then look, I'm godly. And it lets you totally neglect your heart. That's very appealing. That's easy to try to fall into. But boy, this other one is also. Do you realize there are Christians who are all the time being sucked in, myself included at times, trying to get sucked into this idea of the Sadducees. Live for today. Invest everything. for. Live like there is no tomorrow. Put all of your energy and all of your resources into right now. Make this the best time of your life. Don't worry about the next life. One of these two religions doesn't even acknowledge the next life. It's about this life. The other one says, oh, no, no, there is another life. There is a heaven and there's a hell. There is a real God. But here's its problem. The way to go to heaven and the way to avoid hell and the way to have a relationship with God is how well do you keep his laws. And that's a false religion. Each one, these things are constantly trying to vie for our attention. Pharisees, I'm telling you, if, ladies and gentlemen, if we add even one ounce to a hundred pounds of God's grace and we add one ounce of man's performance to earn our way to heaven, we have now canceled out grace. It is no longer grace. That now makes it a payment. Again, even a little bit. We have to watch this. Quickly look at verse 12. And we're going to fly through. Just quickly read a a little passage in Colossians and I'll be done. Look at verse 12 again. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 6 says, watch and beware. Grace for you. Grace for you. Watch and beware. The names of false religion change. The version of them change. But the corruption continues. They're always nearby. Satan would love to infiltrate our church with false teaching. 
And so, guys, that's why I'm going to say it this way. Church leaders, elders in particular, deacons, if you teach a class, those of you who are leaders in any of those capacities, hear these two words. It is urgent that you be able to recognize false teaching and be able to refute false teaching. You need to be able to recognize it and refute it. But I'm going to go further. It's not just on church leaders. The onus is especially on them. But the entire congregation must learn to recognize false teaching and to refute it, no matter who is teaching it, no matter what their title is, no matter if they're the ones preaching every week, no matter if they're the one wearing a tan coat this morning. It doesn't matter who it is. You need to be able to recognize and refute false teaching. The Lord is telling his personally trained disciples. That tells me something. The danger is always there. No, none of us are above being deceived. None of us are above falling into sin. That's why we have to help hold each other accountable. It's your job. It's not your job to hold each other accountable about political opinions and sports things. And like, I'm going to... no. Things that have to do with the scripture. Then we need to, and there's times it'd be privately. I just noticed something. You know what? You're right. Wow. I need to correct that. Praise the Lord. Thank you. And sometimes that's what we're doing in our classes, in our phone conversations, and over a cup of coffee, and when you share vacations together and do all of these things. We need to help, help each other. I know I alluded to this recently. Paul... We're going to say some good stuff next week, Lord willing, about Peter, right? We're going to say some good stuff about Peter. But I remember one time Peter, personally trained and tutored by the Lord for three years, had to be called down by Paul because Peter was getting sucked in and influenced negatively by the leaven of the legalistic Pharisees who were making him embarrassed and ashamed to eat meals with Gentiles. And so when he found out these legalists were coming to where they were going to eat, Peter starts exiting himself, and Paul has to call him down on the spot. Where do you think you're going? I just, no, no, no. You need to eat here. They're wrong. Stop being influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Even Peter's not above being. And Peter wrote two books in the Bible. He knows a whole lot more about the Bible and the Word of God than I do. So if Peter had to get called down, we've got to help each other. How's that possible? Let's go. We'll finish here. Colossians 2. Here's how it's possible. This is it the only way it's possible? Because we don't need to police each other by our opinions. We sure don't need to do that. All that does is create a bunch of strife and, and disunity and this person doesn't like that. No, well, that's not what we need. We need to hold each other accountable on biblical terms. Colossians 2. Let's fly through this. Look at verse 1. Paul did not start the church at Colossae. He's never been there. And yet he's writing them a letter. Apparently he's never been to a town 11 miles away called Laodicea. And yet he wrote them a letter. And he's going to tell each of these two churches. Now you swap letters. The one to the Colossians is inspired though. We have it. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Boy, I struggle. Paul, how much do you struggle? So much that I'm writing you this letter. That's how much I struggle. Verse 2, I struggle. You've never seen me. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. 
Watch these words. And this would take two sermons to go through this, but we're going to read it fast. Watch. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Here it is. To reach all, here's his struggle. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. What is God's mystery? Which is Christ. Read that section again. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this. Here's my struggle. I say this in order that no one may delude you, deceive you, with plausible, convincing, persuading arguments. I don't want you to fall to plausible, convincing, persuading arguments. Skip down to verse 11. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Is this our last note? This is our last note. Write this down. You say, Jeff, you just told us a while ago the church leaders and the congregation as a whole needs to be able to recognize and refute false teaching. How can we do that? Write this down. This is simple. It's obvious. The text just showed us. The best way to recognize and refute false teaching is to deeply know Christ. And I want you to add a word. To deeply know Christ and the principles, but above principles, write timeless principles of the Bible. That's how you'll be able to recognize and refute false teaching. How will we know, Jeff, there's so much swirling around in the United States today. How do we know what's true and what's false? Not only in religion, just in philosophies and all of these things. How do we know what's true and what's false? There's many ideas, more ideas flying around, more ideas passing now in the last 10 years, literally, than has passed through hundreds and hundreds of years previously because we share information so fast. How do we know what's true? Here it is. Deeply know Christ and the timeless principles of the Word of God. If we will do that, then we take our knowledge of Christ and the timeless principles and apply them to all the things that are flying at us in the culture. And then we can decide and discern, not decide, we can then discern that's true and that's false. But I'm going to tell you what it's going to take. Follow me right here. It takes two things. It takes the grace of God to give us a deep knowledge of Christ and a deep knowledge of the principles of the Word of God. It takes grace, but it also takes time commitment, and that's where I just lost some folks. It takes a commitment of time. You see verse 8. I need to point this out. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition. According to, do you know how some pastors interpret that? Philosophy, all human philosophy, and all psychology is wrong. That's not what that text is saying. That text is not saying that all human learning and all human philosophy and all the things that the psychologists have learned about human behavior, it's all wrong and none of it is true. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that all human philosophy and traditions and psychology and all of those things, supposed learning of mankind needs to be run through the filter of what we know about Christ and the principles of the Word of God. And what we'll find is a lot of it is true, but then we can discern what is untrue. Because here's my burden. This is where I'm finishing this morning. I told you I was going to finish with a suggestion in a moment that is not binding it's not a rule 
You don't have to do it. It's not in the Bible. But here's what it stems from. Here's my burden. I have a concern that many, many Christians, even in Graceview, are very undiscerning when it comes to filtering what they hear and read. Let's get more specific. I'm very concerned that many Christians, even in Graceview, are undiscerning when it comes to filtering what they hear and read in social media, in national news, in books, and in classes under professors and teachers, our students. Just undiscerning. Read a book. Taking it, just the gates wide open. Whatever I read, I believe. Whatever I see on the news, I believe. Whatever that person tweets, whatever picture of this person, oh, that's cool. Whatever this article on the internet says must be true. It's on the internet. It's like, what are you doing? Be more discerning than that. Let me read. I'm, I, I go faster when I read. Hang with me, though. This is important. Many Christians think they can fully trust their news sources. And they can fully trust people that they follow. Oh, no, no, Jeff. You don't have to worry about me. I watch the good one. You don't have to worry about me. I watch, you know the one. That's the one I watch. Can I tell you? You need to be discerning on all of them. Why? You don't realize how godless some of these people are. Go look at their, their life behind the scenes. What you will find in these boardrooms in their private life. They don't know God. And sometimes Christians are just sitting there saying, everything they say must be true. And you just go off on these things about bread. Off we go thinking about bread. And the Lord would have us thinking about something else. What you don't realize is how driven by profit they are. They're driven by profit. They want you to click. They need you to watch. They'll do what it takes. They'll keep you in a panic. It's their job. It keeps you coming back day after day. Here's my proposal, and I really will be done. This is not a rule or a tradition. And I realize I'm going to say this, and because it's 12-11, many are going to go, I've already checked out. And some, as soon as I say this, are like, no, not doing that. It's going to sound radical. But here's my question. Is it right? I propose, and for some, this would be a big shift, but it's simple. Some may be like, oh, what's this grand thing? No, it's just simple. Here it is. I propose that you limit your intake of social media and national news to always be less than your time spent in God's Word in prayer. What if you really did that? Some of you may be thinking right now, you've got a little um, analyzer on your phone. And some of you get your analytics on Saturday night or Sunday morning, and you're like, 16.3 hours per day on the screen. That is not humanly possible, Jeff, for me to study my Bible more than that. Okay, something's got to change. Here it is again. I propose that we limit the intake of our social media and national news, regardless of who it is, to always be less than our time in God's Word and in prayer. You say, what do you mean God's Word? Reading it, studying it, meditating on it. Watch. Listening to good Bible podcast, being at the church in the Lord's house, small group 
Bible studies. Here's another one. Always set your default that what you hear from the culture will always be run through the filter of what you know about Christ and the principles of the Word of God, not the other way around. I'm not going to run what I believe about Christ and the Bible through the filter of the culture. No, I'll run what you guys say through the filter of this. And this is going to get more time. Now, right about now, someone's probably thinking, boy, Bartlett's up there preaching against national news and social media. I'm not. I'm not saying they're sinful. I promise you I'm not. What I'm preaching against is the inappropriate amounts of time that many Christians spend in taking these things and the small amount of time that they're spending in God's Word because it is adversely affecting how Christians are thinking and living. And that's a problem, and it needs addressed. I get it. I'll admit, I'll admit to you, the things that Mike and his team of men and Deanna and her team of women are suggesting and advising that you guys, those devotional suggestions and all that reading, phew, That's like heavyweight stuff, I'll admit to you. That's robust. I mean, if you really do it, those of you that are in the men's groups, those of you who are doing the various women's ministries, if you really do it and you don't cheat, that's robust. And it's a big commitment. That's why some are on the sideline like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And some of you are like, oh, I'm in it. It is robust. It takes a lot. It is so valuable for two reasons. It's so valuable for what it's positively doing in you. And it's valuable for what it's negatively keeping you from doing. You're like, well, I don't even have time by the time I do all these five things that she asked me to do. And by the time we do that and that and that, we read this. And we got to read that before our next group meeting. And I'm supposed to meet with them and fast here and pray this much and do that and that. I don't even have time to do it. Exactly. Right on schedule. Perfect. Well, that only leaves me like 20, 30 minutes to see what's going on in the world. Great. Stay the course. Stay the course. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Beware of the leaven of the scribes, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just before we pray, let's revisit. Way back in our message, there was a quick point. I just want you to check your heart. Is there anyone right now, your attitude recently has been very demanding that God do some special, special thing out of the ordinary, and whether you really verbalize that in your mind or not, your attitude toward God is such that if He doesn't come through, you're going to be angry at Him. He owes it to you. You've lived for Him all these years. And he needs to come through with a miracle. My faith is riding on it. Please don't be that way. Pray in great faith and pray according to his will. For as long as he leads you to pray. And you keep holding out. You keep holding on. But don't let your faith depend on God's response to a prayer request. Our second point there really tied to the third. But it had two parts. Let's not be guilty of doing what the disciples did, of hearing the Word of God and just taking off on our own personal applications that are totally out of context and cause us to arrive at conclusions that God's not really sponsored and leads us to thinking He's not faithful. 
maybe this needs spoken to someone. In all the ways that God has revealed himself in your life, I'm telling you, the second song we sang today was brand new, I think. I had not heard it. It was about evidence. Have you forgot? Is there one person here who's like the disciples on the boat? Do you not know that he can repeat those two miracles at any time? He's not stressed that you forgot bread. He's not stressed that you seem to be running low. So why are we stressed? We need reminded of that. We said last week, he's got resources by the boatloads. He owns the planet. We're his children. We're his responsibility. Our job is to just be able to honestly say, I'm in your will, Lord, and I trust you. It's up to you to take care of me. And he will. But then lastly, can I invite you to evaluate your life? Are you really proficient at lesser things that don't matter eternally? Hey, they, that may be how you make your living, praise the Lord. It's a fine thing. But have you put so much energy in becoming proficient at other things that do not matter for eternity that it's left you deficient in being able to understand and properly interpret the Word of God? If your schedule allows you, if at all possible, I want to encourage you, come out this week. Let's review together how to interpret the Word of God properly and encourage each other to study it. And I think we'll soon be revisiting a study that was interrupted last year. So evaluate your intake of the secular versus the spiritual. Be diligent to study God's Word. Just for its own sake, not looking for that misapplied text or word to force into your life, but just, Lord, show me your timeless principles about you and about me, and along the way, you will find that his word is timely, and it will meet the need. Study it for its own sake as an avenue to grow in your relationship and to know him better. Let's pray. Father, we come through Christ and in the spirit, Lord, of Colossians chapter 2 that you inspired Paul to write to that group of people he'd never seen. Lord, I think what he wrote there applies to us today. Help us to know Christ personally, deeply. Help us to know the principles of your word that are timeless so that we can apply them. Lord, there's a lot of really good truth. We believe that that you are allowing a lot of really good truth to come across television and the internet and through social media. And these are great tools. But Lord, the enemy is using them as well. And so may we be discerning and diligent and able to recognize and refute false teaching. May it not have a foothold in our personal lives, Lord. May you keep it from ever having a foothold in our church. May we invite accountability. Lord, may I be held accountable. May your spirit guard me against being a false teacher. Lord, if I start straying, would you help our leadership in this body to lovingly point that out as we would with each other. Lord, would you go with us this week? God, if you'll show us things out of your word this week, we'll delight in them and we're very apt to return. And we need that. Lord, be with our ladies groups that are meeting Tuesday night, Wednesday morning probably Thursday evening. A couple of them, Lord. Be with our men's groups as they're studying and 
doing various assignments and in your word. And Lord, those that are not yet in that and doing their own studying, Lord, their, their schedule just truly didn't allow it. I pray, Lord, that we would adhere. If this be in your will, God, if this be in your will, that we would always get more of your word and time in prayer than we allow this culture to influence us. Let us be like leaven spreading your kingdom rather than evil and false teaching being like leaven in our church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.